Thank you for joining us. I have uh, Dr. James with us today. Um, I recently spoke with him. He's a union analyst based out of Chicago. He has his own private practice there and he uh, is part of the union institute there. Um, in our last conversation, it ended, I, I brought up how uh, the university that I go to and study in clinical psychology, we use the DSM-5. We're taught to give uh, quick diagnoses um, anything from major depressive disorder to an adjustment disorder to generalized anxiety disorder. And for those unfamiliar with it, the DSM-5 is all, um, it's categorized based on, there's like mood disorders, uh, there's anxiety disorders, there's learning disorders. So they're categorized. And then each disorder is, uh, there's a list of symptoms that, that are a criteria a certain amount of symptoms must be met in order for this diagnosis to fit. So um, for instance, at the private practice that I'm working at, um, we see a client for maybe 45 minutes. It's our first, our initial interview, um, our initial session. And by the end of that 45 minutes, uh, for insurance purposes, we need to have a diagnosis and give that client a diagnosis. And then um, that gets sent off to the insurance company so that they can pay. Uh, and then it's usually, depending on the diagnosis, the insurance companies will say, well, you have a, this amount of time or this amount of sessions to, um, to bring the symptoms down to where they no longer meet criteria for a diagnosis. So that's kind of the way that it works with insurance companies with um, kind of the private practice that I'm at. That's the way we're being taught here at school. And I wanted to bring Dr. James on. Um, to see the way that a Jungian analyst might approach this. Um, how do you approach diagnosing um, and, and kind of what do you think of this symptom reduction-based therapy? <laughs> so go, huh? Okay. <laughs> go. <laughs> um, so first of all, um, I think anyone who uses the DSM, mm -hmm. which would be all of us because it does serve as a, a good tool for uh, clarity of communication. Mm. And I think its most valuable uh, aspect is its prognostic ability. Okay. Because looking at the severity of a given situation can give us some important information prognostically. But if people are going to use the DSM, uh, I also recommend that they read a couple of books. Um, one is called Making Us Crazy. Okay. It is a, a critical analysis of the DSM. It came out before the DSM-5. And the other one is The Book of Woe, which is another uh, book that considers the DSM. Okay. Um, I, I want to preface what I say by um, letting people know that I have over the course of my career, I was a professor for uh, 33 years. I was an administrator for another eight. Mm. Um, and I taught courses in diagnostic procedures. So oh. I, I understand the value and the usefulness of the DSM-5. Mm -hmm. um, however, I do let my students know, and I'll reaffirm here, that I think it is a very elaborate, organized fantasy. Hmm. And as a Jungian, uh, I have a great deal of respect for fantasy. But 
it is an organized fantasy in the sense that it imagines that an outside agent, like a therapist, a psychiatrist, uh, a psychologist, and so forth, can make an assessment about a person's inner state, and then based on that, can chart a course of treatment. Uh, it, it seems to me, again, from a Jungian perspective, to be extremely ego-based. Not ego-based in terms of the client, but ego-based in terms of the one doing the diagnosing. Okay. Because, you know, by looking at, I, I forget which one, but I think there's one where if you have five symptoms out of eight in list one and three symptoms out of seven in list two, then it's one thing. But if you have a different combination, it's something else. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the ego of the therapist or the ego of the diagnostician can make an adequate assessment by going through lists of symptoms really implies that we can dominate the psyche. Mm. And of course, as a Jungian, I know that we can't. Mm. Um, when I do use the DSM, I don't take insurance directly. And I never have, but I've been in practice for over 30 years. So oh. when I started, insurance companies would have laughed if uh, somebody wanted to submit uh, an analytic um, bill. Uh. Um, so, you know, I think that things have changed uh, to a certain extent. But I guess I understand that I can't really determine the nature or the extent of a person's suffering mm -hmm. by looking at a list of descriptors. Mm. So I, I always want to be very careful because I want to respect it as a tool. Uh -huh. And it comes from a large community of scholars and healers uh -huh. who are interested, I believe, in facilitating mental health. Mm -hmm. But uh, it appears that it feeds something in the therapist that increases the, the therapist's belief in their own power. Mm. And that's always, for me, a very dangerous thing. Mm. Um, Jung was very clear that when we enter into the analytic container or the therapeutic container, whatever word you want to use, that we have to enter as an equal with the client, equal with the analysand. Mm. And that equality is not based on training. Obviously, the therapist is going to have more training in the particular area of concern mm. than the client, usually, although we certainly can have psychiatrists as clients as well. But it, it's a different kind of power. It's a di the equality is the equality before the self. And the way Jung uses the term self is different than, than uh, it's used in common parlance. It really refers to the core mm. of the individual. And it is the place in the psyche where all of us are connected throughout all space and across all time. And that, of course, is a concept that is not widely accepted in general psychology, especially Western psychology. Mm. But I do think that it's true. Uh, in terms of working with a person who comes in with a particular uh, sort of description of suffering. And we have to meet as an equal in order to 
work with the material that's being offered. Because although externally we can judge a given circumstance or situation as pathological, mm -hmm. from the point of view of the lived experience, it is simply that, my lived experience. And an outside judgment of it as pathological doesn't particularly help because the world is still the world that I'm experiencing. And that's what has to be dealt with. When you, when you meet them as an equal, are you, are you talking about like meeting them as an equal in their suffering or meeting them as an equal kind of like, um, we're, I, you know, we're both fallible human beings who are just trying to understand life. Like what, what do you mean as an equal in that sense? That's a really good distinction, Daniel. And I would say it's a combination of both. Okay. I wouldn't have articulated it that way. Uh -huh. uh, certainly, we meet as equals in the sense that we're two people, you know, trying to figure this all out before it's over. Mm -hmm. And by over, I don't mean the, the therapeutic hour. I uh -huh. mean yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I think we meet in the ground of suffering. Okay. Uh, as you know, and, and probably as most of your listeners know, uh, the primary uh, criterion for training as an analyst is going through your own analysis, usually a mm -hmm. couple of times. Mm -hmm. And uh, much of that is done even before you apply for training. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that I was drawn to practice as an analyst is because as far as I'm concerned, uh, it is the most honest way of engaging in this uh, endeavor. Because I have had to uh, look at my own unconscious, my own suffering, my own demons, whatever words you want to call them. Yeah. And I also have to understand that even with all the work that I've done, and I'm not saying that like, oh, look at me, uh -huh. but I've been on the planet a long time, as you could tell. So, uh, but even with all that work, there is still a, an amazing amount of, of complete unconsciousness that I struggle with mm. uh, moment by moment. And we all do. Yeah. And that keeps you both humble and honest when you're working with someone who is trying to do the same thing. Yeah. So I think equality in suffering, not that my suffering is more than yours or less than yours, but that we suffer and that it, that, that is a common human condition mm. is an important place to meet. Sometimes, again, you know, this is in the, the more pop lighter forms of psychology we often are given the impression that if someone becomes a therapist they have it all taken care of <laughs> yeah you know and you often see you know pictures of therapists and they're always smiling and they always seem to be in the middle of a lovely nature scene oh, yeah. and uh, that may be good marketing but it really doesn't seem to me to represent the truth of the human experience mm -hmm. some days are like that some moments are like that some weeks are like that um, but if that's what we're putting forth as, you know, a depiction of the desired goal of therapeutic intervention, I think that we are going to be disappointing the people that come to see us. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, this is kind of, a, this, it reminds me, I, I listened to a conversation about, are you familiar with Carl Rogers? And mm -hmm, sure. okay. Yeah. He talks about like unconditional positive regard. And I was listening to this conversation with this clinical psychologist who said, you shouldn't even, he says he doesn't, he doesn't agree with uh, providing or kind of seeing the client with unconditional positive regard because 
there are parts of people, let's say the parts that are working against you, that you shouldn't positively regard. You should say, okay, this is part of yourself that's working against you. We need to, it's kind of like your enemy at the moment. So why should we positively regard the parts of you that are trying to keep you from getting where you want to be? Does it make sense? Sure. Okay. Um, yes. And uh -huh. let me take it apart, the notion of unconditional positive regard. Okay. I look at it a little differently. Um, first of all, I don't think we can be unconditional. Okay. I don't think it's humanly possible. Uh-huh. Even in, you know, the best of relationships, the best of friendships, the best of marriages, there are conditions. We may not know what they are until uh, our partner or our friend brushes up against them. But to imagine that I can hold unconditional positive regard for anyone, I think is inflationary in terms of my own uh, belief in myself. Uh -huh. um, Positive is interesting because uh, you, you said that uh, the person you interviewed mentioned that there are some parts of us, and that's a whole other discussion we won't get into, parts. Okay. Okay. Uh, I prefer complexes, but that's just uh -huh. an occupational uh, hazard, I guess. But the idea that there are parts of us that are not positive, that are maybe even, I forget the word you used, you didn't use evil, but it was like, uh, negative, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, if you have a positive, you have a negative. And that is based on Jung's understanding of the persona and the shadow. Uh -huh. So even something that appears positive, you know, that we, we might all agree is a, a good trait to have, mm -hmm. has a shadow to it. Interesting. And so, again, I would, I'd be very cautious as the therapist judging what is positive or what is negative because mm. i can't necessarily know uh -huh. i think for example based on my experience the way i was raised and so forth i think that that engaging in violent behavior toward another person is just wrong uh -huh. okay that if you ask me i would say yeah i think that's wrong mm -hmm. uh, but two things come to mind immediately if i'm confronted by someone who habitually engages in aggressive um, sort of behavior toward others, mm -hmm. uh, I would need to know what that person's life experiences were mm -hmm. that give rise to that kind of response. That's number one. And number two, I have to remember the fantasies I have when I'm stuck in traffic. <laughs> and they are often not tranquil and benign. Yeah. So just the fact that that my violent imagery doesn't emerge as a behavior uh -huh. for, again, a variety of reasons, not all of which may be virtuous. I may be afraid of getting arrested and put in jail. So, uh -huh. uh, But th that in and of itself uh, would suggest that I have to be humble mm. about judgments that I make. Mm -hmm. um, I might prefer not to engage in violent behavior or any, any other negative behavior that you might um, want to name. Mm -hmm. But I really can't, can't say that perhaps for a given individual, forming an alliance with that, what I might consider negative or reprehensible set of behaviors might not have had important survival value for that person. So, so that kind of summarize, Unconditional positive regard for you is more of regard, but for the reason that 
you can't be unconditional with anybody. And, and just because what you see or what you deem positive, you don't know that it is actually positive. It could be the shadow side. So right, who are you to right. say what's okay? Well, yeah, nothing is univocally positive uh-huh. because everything has a shadow. Okay. So, um, and that sometimes is a difficult one for mm. people to accept mm. because uh, you know, people start talking about, well, does that mean that it's, everything's re- morality is relative and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, any anthropologist will tell you that morality is relative <laughs> to, to region and historical period. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I guess so. But that's not a new idea. Yeah, there's a a modern thing. There's a, um, I think economists use it, but it's, uh, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And Mm. I kind of, I really like that quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really good. Right. Right. Okay, so um, how how do you go about, do you still use the DSM-5 just to kind of, do you refer to it or do you kind of, I don't know, do you still use it in your clinical work? Well, I'm thinking of my office bookshelves and I've got a couple of copies there. Yeah. And I, okay. you know, when the DSM five came out, cause I, I've been doing this ever since the DSM three. Mm. So it's like, <laughs> I, I trained on the whisk that didn't, you know, yeah. there wasn't, wasn't even a whisk too, or, you know, the waste back in the day. Uh-huh. Um, so do I still use it? Let me think how to answer that. If I have to. Okay. You know, like occasionally someone will ask for a uh, statement hmm. so that they would submit it to their insurance company for okay. possible reimbursement. Uh-huh. Then, of course, I would I would need to okay. um, refer to it. But usually, what I do is I sit with my analysand hmm. and we talk about what it is and why I'm putting in what I'm putting in. Hmm. So uh, I don't like just giving the diagnosis mm-hmm. and saying, have a nice day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I do use it when I need to for the benefit of the client, but on uh, a day-to-day basis, no. Um, when we train analysts and in my own training, uh, part of the, the uh, training is in the final exam, you have to present two complete cases with a whole lot of, of parts. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the parts is uh, DSM diagnosis and rationale, and then a Jungian diagnosis and rationale. So the DSM diagnosis would be just what we've been talking about. The, you know, the DSM code, why we chose that code, what it means to, to choose that code. Mm-hmm. And then the Jungian diagnosis would have to do with the disposition of complexes, major archetypal themes, uh, typology, would be part of a Jungian diagnosis, introversion, extroversion, thinking, yeah. feeling, and so forth. Um, so it is, it is part of our training, uh, but I would say we relativize its importance. Okay. It's you, also extremely, I'm sorry. No, you're good. It's, it's, it's steeped in the idea of pathology, which uh-huh. is not congruent with a Jungian perspective. Okay. Can you tell me more? Sure. So, and I I always remind people, Jung was no idiot (laughs) and he was a psychiatrist and he worked with severely mentally ill people Hmm. who were hospitalized. 
in certainly the early uh, part of his career. But to look at something as a pathology uh, plays into a model of disease versus health. And even though we know from our personal experience of physical health, that there's a dynamism there. Mm. You know, we don't always feel wonderful every day. Uh And we can get colds, we can get various illnesses, we can break bones or pull muscles and so forth. So there there are situations medically that need some sort of remedy. Mm -hmm. And I suppose we could call that pathology, but the psyche isn't like that. And viewing something as a uh, exemplification of pathology doesn't help in healing. Mm. You know, if someone is hearing voices okay, we can say that that's pathological and be concerned, for example, about schizophrenia or other kinds of thought disorders. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to work with that person, I can't be working with the pathology. I have to be working with the person. And I just had a memory. This is long before I was an analyst. This was when I was in graduate school. And um, there was a particular case uh, that I had been assigned and it was with a nonverbal boy, maybe he was about eight. And I had read all the diagnostics on the, on the boy. Uh, I was not part of the diagnostic team, but I had every, he was diagnosed in our clinic uh-huh. and I had everything I needed. And in those days, uh, we had these two-way mirrors. So those of us who were in training would go into the therapy room and our supervisor would be in the observation room to watch what we were doing. Mm. And I went in with this boy and it, nothing was working. I was trying everything, nothing, nothing, nothing. And I remember hearing the dreaded sound that no one wanted to hear of the door to the observation room opening <laughs> and closing. And then you hear footsteps uh-huh. and you know that your supervisor is <laughs> going to be coming into the room. Uh-huh. So she did. And she just came in and said, would you please go over there and just sit over there? And I thought, well, this is it. I'm getting kicked out. I'm glad I can type, you know. (laughs) And she went over and I won't say that that she worked a miracle, but in the course of about 20 minutes working with this boy, Mm. he was saying words and responding to her with some verbalizations. So then she let me take over, you know, she said, okay, you could take over now. And then she went and observed. Hmm. So the, at, at the end of it, I walked over to her office after I had taken the boy back to his parents. And I said, you know, what happened? I was so prepared hmm. and I was ready for her. She, she was a nice person. She wouldn't have done this, but I was ready for her to say just useless. And, you know, why are you here? And she looked at me and she said, oh, I know you had all the diagnostic material. I know you did because... You know, we had talked about it. She said, but one thing you didn't have. I said, what? She said, you didn't expect him to talk. Hmm. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, well, you had all the diagnostic data that told you he was Uh nonverbal. So you didn't go in with the expectation that he would talk. Hmm. And she was not uh, a Jungian. (laughs) She was (laughs) very scientifically based but that was very a very important teaching Mm -hmm. because of course she was right i was going in oh you poor nonverbal kid and oh Mm. you can't talk and what can i do and that's the totally wrong attitude Mm. that was good for diagnosis but not for treatment yeah it makes me think of 
it makes me think of a lot of the like a diagnosis like borderline or schizophrenia mm-hmm. um or even or even narcissistic personality disorder i think that especially with something like schizophrenia and with the the modern day it's all about biology and it's we're waiting for a biological cure and all that can't be cured and so i think a lot of people they see the diagnosis of borderline or schizophrenia and they're like oh well there's not much that we can do and until until we get like a biological cure for this and so they don't even really put in the work that might yeah so that's what it makes me think of um and there's there's actually have you heard of uh Irvin Yalom? Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. I uh there's this book called The Gift of Therapy. Mm-hmm. And um and and here he talks about a diagnosis. Yeah, so relating to a patient as a borderline or a hysteric may serve to stimulate and perpetuate those very traits because then you go you go in with that mentality of like you said this this child's going to be nonverbal so you don't treat them as if they yeah very interesting right right Right. um so with uh with the dsm you mentioned that it has good prognostic um it can it can lead to reasonable prognostic expectations as in as in um this person only meets this amount of symptoms so there are chances that they are going to heal quicker over time is better than for someone who met a different set yeah okay. uh, that possibly uh, i was also thinking of you know although we don't talk in these terms anymore uh-huh. but in the dsm4 and before there were the axis axis one oh, yeah. and axis two yeah and axis one was more a more acute presentation uh-huh. and axis two was a more uh, chronic sort of presentation that's where you got the personality disorders Mm. which is still there but it isn't quite as uh structured as it used to be with the five axes Uh um and i think it's important to know for example if you're dealing with uh, a a so-called personality disorder Mm. the work will probably be longer and there's going to have to be more of a uh an expectation of non-linear improvement uh-huh. uh, then let's say with something that's that's a, an acute presentation or something that really hasn't been part of the person's uh, presentation for a long period of time yeah yeah but um, I think it can be useful but again simply to allow you to have reasonable expectations but when mm-hmm. you go in and working with someone for example uh, I mean, schizophrenics are amazing to work with because um, the unconscious is just right there. Uh Now, there's no structure, and the ego, if it's present at all, is very, very uh, evanescent. Hmm. But if you can think in, in terms of the unconscious, and especially in terms of the archetypal themes that may be coming up, in in let's say the hallucinations or the voices um you can go quite far Mm. Uh, a colleague of mine uh has spent almost all of her professional life she's now retired from teaching but still has a practice but almost the majority of her professional life was spent in psychiatric hospitals wow working very creatively with schizophrenics uh, around 
the imagery that was coming up. And she's a hardline clinical psychologist, you know, yeah. teaches projectives and diagnostic testing and all of that. So she's not someone that doesn't know the score, huh. but um, really relished working with that population because of the potential. Yeah. When you talk, you mentioned how with the, with the DSM, it's more about treating a pathology. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Nancy McWilliams or not, but she's, she's kind of a classical or maybe Freudian analyst. And she mentioned analysts treating. She wrote psychoanalytic diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, she talks about, she, she gets the term psychological vital signs from someone else. I forget the name, but she, she references um, working more with, instead of trying to reduce symptoms, um, working with trying to build like an increased attachment security or a sense of agency or insight or vitality, um, trying to inc- uh, build like a realistic and reliable sense of self-esteem. Um, is that very similar to how maybe a union analyst would view the process? I have a lot of respect for her work. Oh, yeah. So I'll say that, but yeah. that wouldn't necessarily be the way we would conceptualize it. Okay. In practice, the interesting thing is, in practice, uh, there may not be a whole lot of difference, mm, uh-huh. but um, increasing someone's self-esteem, I'm not really quite sure what that means. Uh, not, okay. I mean, just, I, I know what the words mean. But, yeah, yeah. Um, to not just increasing self-esteem, but reliable and, um, and this is very important, I think, reliable and realistic self-esteem. Realistic. Okay. I don't know if that helps. I was thinking maybe resilient. Yeah. Uh I think the idea of uh, realistic Uh self-esteem, I would perhaps use the term realistic um, sense of of one's um, presence. Uh Self to a Jungian means something different. So, um, but we could say realistic little s self Uh uh, so that a person comes to understand who and what they are, what are their... um, sort of resources and what are their constraints Mm -hmm. and how can they make peace with the fact that we all have a certain if we want to use quantity of resources and quantity of constraints and we have to use that Mm -hmm. as we make our way through the world um i think that that practical approach is very close to what a jungian would do okay but in terms of adaptation you know, not everybody can adapt to the world as it is. And sometimes uh, accommodations have to be made Hmm. by the individual or by the society. So let's, okay. So we have, we have, let's say a client comes in to me and, and so my goal is, okay, I'm going to try and reduce their symptoms and I'm going to try and get this to where they don't have a diagnosis any longer. And then someone like maybe Nancy McWilliams, their thinking is, okay, I'm going to increase their attachment. I'm going to increase their vitality. I'm going to, we're going to work to make them a overall more well-rounded, resilient person who has these, you know, different capabilities. Um, For a Jungian, what is kind of your, do you have kind of a, 
a um not I don't want to say goal. Do you have kind of a a heading in mind, like a course? So there is a course. Uh-huh. There is a a goal. There is a telos. That Jung would use the term telos okay. from the Greek, uh, meaning the end. Okay. Um, and for Jung, every neurotic presentation, so mm-hmm. every symptom or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. has a cause. Okay. It has a, an effect on the individual in the present moment in their lives. Mm-hmm. But and this is unique to Jung, that suffering, that neurosis, is also guiding the individual okay. to a particular next state. Uh-huh. And so that certainly reducing symptoms, I mean, if somebody's coming in cutting or somebody's coming in, you know, yes, I would want to reduce that symptom. Mm-hmm. And I think that what Dr. McWilliams is talking about when she talks about um, increasing their resources or uh, vitality, mm-hmm. I see that as, yes, if I increase vitality, that will probably reduce symptoms. Hmm. Uh, yeah, reduce the, the negative presentation yeah. because we'd be focusing on something else. But then it's always the next question is to what end? Okay. And I think conventional psychological thinking is to the end of normality, uh-huh. however you want to describe that. Uh-huh. And we can describe it as a normal curve, but we're trying to get people to fit into a particular sort of predetermined conceptualization mm-hmm. of what a person, for example, in your case, someone your age, you know, with your, with your resources and everything would be, for me, it would be something different, but <clears throat> we try to get us each to fulfill our um, sort of societal expectations. To love and work is what Freud would have said, right? Well, to love and to work. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, that's great, except that's not the whole thing, uh-huh. because what are we being pulled toward? Why should one person have a particular set of neuro, uh, neurotic symptoms and another person has a different set? Mm. <clears throat> and so we try to work to discern where is this tending? And that's why we rely not only on uh, the person's verbal interactions with us, but dreams. Mm. We pay attention to unconscious presentation in whatever form. Mm-hmm. Um, slips of the tongue, uh, parapraxis. If someone is talking about their horrible boss or their their you know terrible relative, we might talk about what is it about them you don't like because you're putting something on them mm-hmm. that is that you're kind of egesting from your own unconscious and forcing them to carry, uh-huh. and we'd want to know why, uh-huh. you know, so yeah. we could pull that back. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you best determine um, when, a, if, okay, so maybe I'm not clear yet on what is the, uh, the end goal. Yeah. yeah. The word, when you said when, I got real nervous. <laughs> I thought, oh God. <laughs> um, <laughs> ask your question again, because I got caught up in my own stuff. Uh, <laughs> um. Well, I started to ask, so so when do you know they've arrived or when do you know that they've... they've... Oh, well, I, 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 have you arrived? I haven't arrived. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, so yeah. with, uh, you know, that's, so 
in the other two in symptom reduction or in um, increasing these things, um, there's kind of a, oh, okay, it seems like our work is done. You can now love and work or you can now you're symptom free. So I guess um, when, yeah, how do you know when the work yeah, is done? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the idea of symptom free uh -huh. implies that the only reason one would enter into an analytic uh, encounter mm -hmm. is because of some situation that we would consider pathological or, or symptomatic. Yeah, so that's my Certainly okay. people come in the door uh -huh. with suffering. Uh -huh. But, you know, whether that suffering is, you know, fulfills a criterion for symptom or not is sometimes questionable. Yeah. But I think we have to get away from this functionality that unfortunately psychology has fallen into. Uh -huh. And that is, um, you know, it's it's kind of like the, the people who work in the pits at the Indy 500, you know, we're just going to change your oil, change your tires and get you back on the road. Uh -huh. Okay. We're not really going to be concerned about how you're feeling about that ride that you're taking. Um, and I just don't feel like being a, a pit crew member yeah. uh, as an analyst. I think that that's not helpful. So um I have some people that work with me for a relatively short period of time, relatively short period of time speaking analytically would be maybe five to eight years. Okay. Um, but I do have people in my practice that have been with me 20, 30 years, okay. uh, sometimes continuously, sometimes they'll leave for a while and come back. Hmm. Um, because what we're fostering is a relationship to the psyche. And that is as important as a relationship to the so-called outer world, because from a Jungian perspective, the outer world bespeaks the structures and dynamics of the psyche, and the structures and dynamics of the psyche mirror the so-called outer world. So there's an interpenetration of those two apparently separate domains. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a little bit mind-blowing until you get used to it. But... Um, you talked about biological reduction where, you know, if only we could find either the biochemical substrate of something or the genetic substrate of something, then we know what we're dealing with and we perhaps can, can foster a cure. Mm -hmm. From a Jungian perspective, we, we're, we're archetypal reductionists. So, you know, looking at genetics or looking at medication uh, is itself an expression of an archetypal pattern. Just look at antidepressants. Uh -huh. Some of them, the, the uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh -huh. close the gate so that the serotonin isn't taken up as quickly uh -huh. so that it can, can improve mood that way. Other um, antidepressants put substances in to the synaptic region in order to facilitate. So those, those are archetypal. Hmm. You know, closing the gate. <laughs> sending something forth. Those are archetypal patterns. Uh -huh. In the realm of biochemistry and neurochemistry, that's how they work. And they're amazing. But we would want to say, okay, that's a particular expression of the archetypal pattern that we might call um, uh, closing off. So that, you know, my kind of containment, let's, let's let that be there. We're not going to let it come back in. And the other is to send something forth that closing off or sending something forth are archetypal.
and we see them in stories, we see them all over. So it's a, it isn't that we're the opposite, it's just like if the world is looked at this way, we kind of look at it this way, just uh-huh. a little bit, you know? Yeah. But it's enough that uh, a large segment of psychologists think we're, cur- we're crazy. <laughs> so, I guess, yeah, when I ask that question, it kind of reminds me of the bubble that I'm in because I'm asking, how do you know when you no longer need therapy? But that's, I think I, 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 in um, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, it's like a small, yeah. There's somewhere in there where Jung talks about his, his hope is that one day everyone will have a therapist basically, and everyone will have an analyst. And, um, you know, I know people in my personal life and I, I honestly had the thought up until recently as well, that um, you go to see a therapist because there's something that's bothering you or troubling you or because you can't get out of a funk or something like that mm-hmm. um so that it, it, that is the the kind of the general consensus and um mm-hmm. yeah um so there's another another thing i kind of i wanted to ask about is or I, maybe um along the same line of thinking there is a there's a quote by hippocrates i think he said um it's more important to know the type of person that has the disease rather than the type of disease a person has. Mm. And I think when it comes to like manualized treatments for depression, let's say, um, they're kind of just like, okay, you have a diagnosis of depression. We're going to follow this uh, treatment 12 weeks. We should get you out the door. And, um, and so to where it seems that we're at a type of thinking where it's the only thing that we need to know about is the diagnosis. We don't really need to know about the person who has it. Yeah. And, you know, we have to look at a whole lot of the mechanism Hmm. that gave rise to that because that just didn't come about because people didn't have anything better to do. Uh When, when the mechanization of psychotherapy includes the, what I believe are draconian limitations imposed on therapists Mm -hmm. by insurance companies, which Mm -hmm. really are the arbiter of treatment. You may get your doctorate and you may get 12 other doctorates, but as long as we believe that we have to to function um, according to the guidelines of an insurance agency, Mm -hmm. that's what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. Because what you're looking at there is a model that says less is better because it decreases our outlay of capital. And that's problematic. That's forcing psyche into a system that is economic and that may work very well for allocation of resources mm-hmm. and the, the you know, movement of goods and services. That's not psychology. Mm. And it's unfortunate that that seems to be bleeding in to psychology. So then you get what I call, you're too young to remember this, the name that tune attitude toward uh, psychological treatment. Back in the 50s and 60s, um, there was a television show called Name That Tune. Okay. And it was a quiz show. And what would happen is their contestants would be there. And they would be asked, they, they're going to play a certain number of notes. And the task was for the the contestant to guess the piece of music or the song Hmm. based on a certain number of notes. Uh And the winner would be the one that could guess the song with the fewest number of notes. 
Okay. So that the person would say, I can name that tune in five notes. Someone else could say, I'm, I can name that tune in three notes. And to me, that's kind of what we're doing with psychological treatment. Oh, I could cure that, that particular condition in 10 sessions. Mm. Oh, well, I could cure it with my method in five sessions. Uh-huh. And what the hell are we uh-huh. doing? That, that is, what is that about? Uh-huh. You know, we're not, what's, who wins? And what do we win? Yeah. And I could reduce your symptoms very quickly. If I were a psychiatrist, I could probably reduce your symptoms in one visit. You'd be walking around like a zombie with tardive dyskinesia all over the place, mm. but you wouldn't be doing whatever it is you were doing. You might not be able to do much of anything. Uh-huh. But if we focus only on symptom reduction, we could do that. Uh-huh. But that isn't what psychiatrists do. That's a misrepresentation of psychiatric mm. uh, practice. And I don't think it's what psychologists should do or therapists. If you could, um, I, I, I hear an argument for, for, so let's say at the private practice that I'm working at, one of the, one of the clinicians there, he's got his master's, he's a, um, he's a counselor. And he brought up about, he said, you know, if you want to go off after you graduate and you want to, and you want to have a private practice and only see like the upper class or the elites or whatever that is, he's like, fine. But most people who need us are, you know, they can't pay without insurance. And um, so he brought up this kind of, and then I started thinking, okay, so what, and like, uh, I don't know, what do you think about that argument that that well without without insurance a lot of these people can't see us and therefore we have to kind of do what the insurance companies tell us to do i don't know well I, you know there certainly are many people that can't afford to see yeah, yeah. yeah. um that being said uh i i have many many friends who are analysts myself included mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anyone who just has a fee and that's what they charge. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, you know, I always tell people when they come to see me, yeah, I have to charge a fee. I have to make a, a living, but money isn't the only thing you pay with. Uh-huh. And there are plenty of people who could pay my fee and double my fee that I won't bother with because they view uh, Jungian analysis as the next charm on some sort of charm bracelet. Mm. First, we get our chakras aligned, then we, you know, yeah. get our office saged, and then we go to analysis, and then we go walk on hot coals or something. I don't. Know. <laughs> and that I, I'm not interested in that uh-huh. because uh, when we engage in this work, it's not just for the period that we're seeing the therapist or the analyst. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to commit to practicing some of the things that you learn throughout your life, don't bother. Mm. There's a lot better things to do with however much money you are able to spend. Yeah. Um, so there is that, but I do want to speak to what this person is saying. And that is, um, unfortunately, again, we are in the grips of the insurance company right now. Mm. And uh, I understand that I, I operate with a certain level of privilege in not taking it. Mm-hmm. And it isn't even that I decided not to take it as much as when, I, again, when I started my practice, it wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just wasn't yeah. something that happened. Yeah. Um, 
but I think you're pointing to something that worries me about psychotherapy. And I'll tell you what it is. If we work strictly on symptom reduction and we don't provide some sort of education in the way the psyche works, mm -hmm. eventually the symptoms will reemerge. And a couple of things will happen. Mm. Either the person will feel they failed uh -huh. or they must be much sicker than, than the, the therapist thought. Uh -huh. That's not good, but there's a worse secondary outcome. And that is they can come to believe that therapy doesn't work. Uh -huh. And that to me is worse because then what do you do? Yeah. Then I'm not going to go see a therapist again. That jerk didn't help me at all. Yeah. And Jung was very clear that in addition to whatever the therapeutic intervention was, the educational aspect has to be part of it to explain to people how, how the mind works and how psychological symptoms come about and what they mean. And that's where we're failing too, mm -hmm. because that's how you empower the, the, client, the patient, the analysis, whatever term you want to use, that's how you empower them to take their own um, sense of, of psychological well-being into their own hands. And that's very necessary. Do you, do you give them kind of that education right off the bat or do you string it into different sessions as you go along? It depends on the person. Uh -huh. um, you know, there are some people that are, some people come in and they're already very well schooled hmm. in you know in psychology they may not know how the psyche works no. but they know about psychology and so i'll capitalize on that mm -hmm. but the kind of instruction i'm talking about isn't always something formal it could be i remember one man came in very very upset he had been seeing me for a while and i said what's wrong he said well i had a dream i can't remember what the details are but it was some, something bad had happened to someone in his family. And then turns out something bad happened to some, someone in his family. And he was mm. very frightened. He thought, does this mean I'm crazy? I'm, you know, this feels like, I said, oh, it's a precognitive dream. We have those all the time, mm. which is true. Uh -huh. Now I said it in a very offhand way because that's a, a clearly demonstrable uh -huh. um, phenomenon. Uh -huh. And a couple of years later in the course of the work, he said, you know, one of the most valuable things you said to me, which always gives me the chills because I think, what the heck did I say? <laughs> um, he said was when you just said, oh yeah, that happens all the time. Hmm. And there was something about that that he took to mean he wasn't crazy. And that was very valuable. And that was nothing I planned. Uh -huh. But that was in a way educative uh -huh. about the way the mind works, the way the unconscious works. And, um, you know, you, you see it a lot, too, when people <clears throat> think that they've solved a problem, and then it happens again, mm -hmm. usually around the holidays. You know, I'm okay with my family. I'm cool. I'm not angry at my uncle. I'm all right. Then they go for Christmas dinner, and it all falls apart. <laughs> and then they come into their session right after, and they go, oh, this I'm just awful. No, that happens. We can't mm -hmm. control all of the triggers in the outer world mm -hmm. that could, you know, activate our complexes. That happens. Just be gentle. Let's look at what happened. A lot of people don't want to look at it. It's too painful. But let's go right in it because that's how we're going to learn 
how to maybe step aside next time hmm. and not fall into those old patterns. Uh-huh. But it'll happen. You know? Yeah. It reminds me of um, uh, two, a couple of things. One, I, I believe there's research that shows kind of the trajectory of therapy and maybe it's after that first or second session, a lot of the, a lot of the clients, they, they report that they feel a lot better. And then around like session seven or eight, they start getting worse. And then, mm-hmm. um, and so being, even just educating them on that, like this, this might happen. And also if, if let's say throughout therapy, um, you get to a place where the client or the person that you're working with feels a certain sense of safety. And then that allows them to, maybe, maybe finally mourn something that they've never mourned before. And so if you were to score them on like a depression inventory, yeah, their scores might go up, but it's not indicative of anything wrong. It's actually part of the problem. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. That's really good because what you're, Hmm. what you're talking about there, Daniel, um, we also tend to have this kind of linear um, notion of recovery or getting better. Hmm that it's this line and it just keeps going, uh-huh. you know, and it's up, 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 better, better, better all the time. <laughs> and that just isn't realistic. Hmm. And if that's the assumption, and I think that that is largely the assumption that people are given or uh, people are taught to have that assumption. that Once you start, you're going to feel better and it's going to be better every day. Hmm. Um, well, if you, if you, substitute the word awareness for better, you will become aware and more deeply aware Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But that means some days you're going to have to sit in a corner and go, I can't believe I did that and really own it. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be a good day, but that doesn't mean that that is backsliding Uh because we're much more dynamic than any linear model of improvement Mm -hmm. can, uh, express. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Do you, um, kind of, kind of changing lanes for just a moment. And you mentioned psychoanalytic diagnosis and Nancy McWilliams and she, you know, they categorize like, let's say people have different or certain personality types. So there's like a schizoid personality type or, um, right. Obsessive compulsive personality type. Um, and I know, Jungian had, you mentioned in a case conceptualization, you might mention like their typology, like introvert or extrovert. Mm -hmm. Do you also have personality types or do you, do you look at people that way or not? Uh, You can look at people that way. Yes. And I think the, the uh, brilliance of Nancy McWilliams work Mm -hmm. is that instead of calling it disorder, Uh she calls it, she, she uses a more benign term like type, I think, or style. I can't remember the term she used, but that's a much, uh, I think, um, more positive, more powerful way of looking at it Mm. because that's a depathologizing move Uh to say that it's a type. You have an obsessive compulsive type of personality. Uh Okay. Okay. Then I can work with that. If I can know what that means. Yeah. I understand. All right. So I'm going to have to watch certain things. I'm going to have to be aware of certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's very empowering to the client. Okay. To know that. Yeah. And the other thing is we all have parts of us, you know, there's a, um, 
a volume called The Mad Parts of Sane People in Analysis. And it's a series of essays. Um, but we, we, you know, we do talk about the parts of us that can look pretty crazy <laughs> sometimes, you know, yeah, yeah. and to realize that they're all part of what makes up our, our whole mm-hmm. being. I think that could be, that could be important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess the short answer, which I never give is um, for some situations, looking at it through types like a narcissistic personality type or an obsessive compulsive type or whatever could be part of the diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I thought it was a good point because um, kind of going back to it's, it's understanding the person who, ha- who has the disease in the, in the Hippocrates language. Um, mm-hmm. So me and me and a, me and a fellow student were talking the other day about if, if he was depressed and I told him, um, well, maybe you should just go and try to try to socialize, try to make, try to be around people. He was like, that would not work for me. <laughs> but, and, uh, but, you know, you might tell someone else who has maybe a different um, personality type, let's say you might tell them and they might, that, that might be exactly what they need. So I was kind of thinking along those lines and, uh, and how you might conceptualize uh, maybe working with different types of people with a similar presentation, but they, they require different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, that would be where we would look at the archetypal ground of the suffering. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, for some reason, when you were talking, I was thinking the, the person who goes, that's not going to work for me is uh-huh. more of an Eeyore type of personality. Oh, that's mm. not going to work. It's a <laughs> lousy day. And the person who goes, well, let me try that. Maybe more a Winnie the Pooh type of personality. Uh-huh. And by the way, Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh are archetypal images. Okay. Just like, you know, Romeo and Juliet or whatever. Yeah. So we, the question that we always ask when we're working with someone is, you know, not only what are the, uh, the particular symptoms or what is the, the level of personal expression of the suffering, mm-hmm. but then we always ask, what's the ar- archetypal ground of the suffering? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways, for example, to be depressed. Someone could be depressed like um, Demeter. The, who was Persephone's mother. And when Persephone went into the underworld and was taken from her, Demeter just said, the world is barren. Mm-hmm. Nothing will grow here. Uh, other people can be depressed like Hephaestus, uh, who was Aphrodite's husband and um, caught Aphrodite and her lover Ares in, uh, you know, in, a, in flagrante delicto, because in his depression, he forged... Uh, a big net that he threw over that he designed it so that when they were making love, it, it uh, <laughs> enclosed them in the bed and he took them up to Mount Olympus. Hmm. Um, so even something like that, uh, a very common diagnosis can have a different archetypal ground mm-hmm. depending on the, the particular texture or quality of that suffering. That's why it's important to go beyond just the, the diagnostic label. Hmm. How are you depressed? That, that's important. What do you, on a daily basis? Sometimes I'll say, if there were a video camera in your, in your house, what would I see hmm. as you're walking around in what you're calling a state of depression? Mm-hmm. And some people say, I'm, I'm just sitting in front of the TV. Other people, I'm doing mindless things. I'm cleaning things that don't need to be cleaned. 
Mm. You know, okay, we're looking at two very different presentations. Yeah. But just by asking the question, the person is moving beyond the label to the manifestation in their particular behavioral repertoire. Uh-huh. And that's what we can begin to work with. Do you look at different um, archetypal groundings as having different trajectories? Well, they would because the archetypal ground uh-huh. is usually expressed or it's most easily understood. The uh-huh. archetypal ground itself is imageless, but it's more it's usually understood through imagery of mythology, religion, um, art, you know. Uh-huh. So, yes, you, you would be looking at a different sort of movement mm-hmm. of psychic energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the archetypal ground. But the other thing that we also can work with analytically is shift the archetypal ground. Mm. Because it isn't fate. I mean, there is fate, but we won't talk about that. That's a whole (laughs) other. But, you know, what is the archetypal ground? If someone uh, is in an archetypal ground, that's always the warrior. Mm. Everything is a battle and I am going to win. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's under, if we look at Greek mythology, under the aegis of Ares. So what do we know about Ares? He had relationships with Aphrodite. He had certain relationships with, you know, you just look at the myths of Ares, because that's going to give me a way to begin to shift the energy. We're always thinking, how can we, if you're stuck in a particular archetypal node, Uh the suffering will continue. So part of the job, and some people can can deal with it mythologically, others deal with it in other ways, but part of the job is helping the person understand that there's a vast archetypal field that they can move in. Hmm. We don't have to be stuck. Uh And so sometimes you heat things up. You challenge a person's default settings. Uh Not the way to look at it. And the discomfort that the heat of the interaction, this is using an alchemical metaphor, which was another way that Jung understood analytic work, that heat provides a little bit of unlocking and movement. It's like if you have something that's coagulated, if you can heat it up and you make it fluid, it can flow somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So the old alchemical dictum, solve et coagula, if something is solid, dissolve it. If something is too fluid, because we see people like that too, right? I don't know, and everything's great, and blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of like, did you pay the rent? Uh-huh. Did you take a bath? Uh-huh. Okay, that's solidifying something that's a little bit too flowy. Uh-huh. So, and all of these are judgment calls that have, have to be made based on the intimate interaction between analyst and analysis. And that's also hard because you talked about manual driven or whatever term you use. Yeah. Um, therapy. <laughs> At what point, if we play that game, do we become completely irrelevant? Mm-hmm. One of the most important things I learned in analyst training is we are not interchangeable. And my university training taught me that we were. Mm. So that if you and I were in the same program yeah. and I have somebody coming in at 10 o'clock, but I just, you know, got a toothache and I have to go get my tooth pulled. Uh-huh. I could say to you, Daniel, could you see my 10 o'clock? Uh-huh. And in, in certain settings, that would be fine. We're both equally qualified. Why not? Mm. But no, there are mm. people that you're going to be able to work with 
that the chemistry would be all wrong with me. Mm. We wouldn't get anywhere and vice versa. So the individual relating to the individual is where the healing takes place. Mm. And we're not interchangeable. Not as, as the therapist and not as the patient. Yeah. I even remember also in Modern Man in Search of a Soul, Jung in there talked about if you're working with someone that just, it, it's not working, it's, you should, the thing to do is to refer them to someone that you think Correct. they can work with. Yeah. Yep. And I think going all the way back to him, that was kind of a novel idea at the time, probably. It certainly was. Yeah. It certainly was. Right. Very interesting. When you talk about shifting the archetypal ground, let's say if someone's stuck in kind of the Aries mode, like you said, mm -hmm. um, what language came to my mind is, okay, they're, they're in a certain pattern or a way of life, and you want to introduce a new pattern or a new style of living. And so is that accurate? Kind of like, or um, I'm not, I'm trying to think of maybe a different other than the hero archetype. I know there's like the trickster. Or, are you trying to introduce kind of a new archetype, a new, a new kind of um, spirit to embody, let's say. Yeah, I, I like I like the new spirit thing. Mm. Um, the way I would do it would be to try to find some sort of expression for the archetypal ground. Often it would be myth; doesn't have to be. Uh -huh. um, it could be theological. You know, uh -huh. um, Christianity, for example, provides very interesting psychology in in the whole notion of the Trinity. Mm. You have the, the omniscient, <clears throat> you know, um, transcendent mm -hmm. divinity mm -hmm. in the so-called God, the Father. You have the imminent presence of the divine in, in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then you have the sort of uh, omnipresent <laughs> uh, form of divinity in, in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Those that would I could use that if somebody is comfortable with Christian mythology, and again I use the word mythology not in a disrespectful way. Okay. Uh, that that could be a way. Uh -huh. um, fairy tales, you know. Let's take a look at that. Look at what happens when someone persists in this kind of pattern, hmm. and you begin to move the person from their personal experience of whatever it is we're dealing with uh -huh. to a, a more um, mythological expression. Universal. It does two things. Universal. Uh -huh. it, it reminds them, not in a hallmark way, but it reminds them truly, others have suffered in this way. Hmm. That's why we have myths like this, uh -huh. you know? Uh -huh. um, like others have felt like, I'm getting real uh, biblical for some reason, others have felt like the prodigal son. Hmm. You're not alone. Uh -huh. That can be very freeing. But then getting into the story gives them some insight into other ways to be mm. and also helps them engender compassion, which is often something that we need mm -hmm. toward others in their story. Because if I'm occupying a particular place in a story, even if I don't know what that story is, mm -hmm. everyone around me is going to be assigned roles in my story. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm also being assigned roles in their story, uh -huh. which is why the world is such a mess. But if we can understand <laughs> that dimension, I can lighten up a little bit. Okay. I don't have to be stuck in my story and I don't have to see you as stuck in your story. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how we heal, I think. Yeah, I like that. Um, well, we are about at our time. Um, 
I just want to thank you again for coming back on. I really thank enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thanks.